if you ache for truth, goodness, and beauty, if you're hungry for a Christianity with substance and strength, if you long for a faith that's big and bold and biblical and all about Jesus Christ, if you're inspired by the idea of one church that has spanned 20 centuries, 24 time zones, and two hemispheres, enfolding every race, nation, and language, then you're considering Catholicism. If you follow this podcast, then you've gotten to know my Protestant friend, Ed. Now, Ed is curious about Catholicism. And over the last year, we've been recording our conversations as he asks me questions about Catholic beliefs and practices, as well as some experiences like his first Mass. Now, as we've moved through his questions, we've gotten to harder topics for a Protestant to overcome. So, for example, in our last conversation, episode 29, he finally got around to asking about Catholic doctrines about the Virgin Mary. That's one of the highest hills for any Protestant to climb on their road to Rome. Well, today we talked about another major problem for Protestants, the papacy. Now, if you're a cradle Catholic, you may not have any idea just how controversial that is and has been for 500 years since the Reformation. In fact, I might argue that the papacy, particularly abuses of the papacy, was the major driver for the development of the Reformation and Protestant theology. Now, credo-Catholics have a handful of points that they pull out to explain the papacy. Jesus said that Peter was the rock upon which he'd build his church. Peter was the first of the apostles to enter the empty tomb, and he was the first to meet the risen Christ. Peter preached the first sermon at Pentecost. Peter led the other apostles and performed miracles in Jerusalem. Peter made the first Gentile convert, the centurion Cornelius. Peter spoke with authority to the other disciples at the Council of Jerusalem in Acts 15, etc., etc. And since, the Credo Catholic points out, the Pope is the successor of Peter, with Peter buried under the altar in St. Peter's Basilica where he was martyred, the Pope inherits Peter's authority under the principle of apostolic succession. Here's the problem. While all of that is true, most of it isn't persuasive to Protestants, otherwise they, well, they wouldn't be Protestant. So, when Ed asked me about the papacy, I decided to tackle this question from another direction. Take a listen, and let me know what you think. And if you know any Protestants that question the papacy that you think might benefit from listening to this, then please share this episode with them. Welcome to Church Chats with Greg and Ed where Greg and his Protestant friend, Ed, chat about the church. All right. I want to talk about the Pope. This, of we talked course. about Mary last time, mm-hmm. and uh, that was probably the big one, but this is a big one too. This is like, this is in like the top five gripe sessions right. that I've ever, uh, top five topics I've ever, uh, that again, when I, when I have s- sat around my, with my, with my uh, Protestant friends right. and, and bashed Catholic Catholics and Catholicism, oh, yeah. this was, this was it. This is one of the big ones. Um, and, we're, and you know, we're talking about, we're talking about eye rolling and accusations of heresy and yeah. outrighteous indignation. And I'm never yeah. going to kiss that ring. That's idolatry. Right. And, well, and, and just to jump in there, you know, the Protestants have been playing that 
uh, card for 500 years. I mean, you know, so what you have is a whole history of anti-Pope propaganda. Uh, and maybe we'll get into that in this conversation. But, you know, um, when England went through the Protestant Reformation and you substituted the king for the pope, so the king, in a sense, became the pope of the Church of England, uh, it unleashes this huge amount of anti-pope propaganda. Right. You know, they even have fun, funny words for it, you know, popery and uh, all this kind of stuff, right? Um, and you're a papist. And then all the way down to contemporary things, you know, the, the chick tracks, you know, those little evangelical sort of tracks to scare you, like little comic book things that they used to put under people's windshields back in the 70s and 80s uh, that I remember in California, uh, where it was like these little comic books and the whole thing was, you know, beware of the Pope and the Pope is the emissary of Satan and, you know, and all these kinds of crazy things. So, yeah, the, the whole Pope thing is... Uh, is there's a long, rich history of Pope bashing. Well, and it's kind of fun. I mean, yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, was at a, I was at a church conference, and the guy said, uh, this is a famous evangelical leader, and he said, the hope of the world is the local church, and the hope of the local church is his leadership. And I thought, no, the hope of the world is Jesus Christ. That's the first thing I thought right. was, Okay, you're setting yourself up between, and that's and the longer I think about it, the more I think you're just kind of setting yourself up for a pope to be a pope. And well, I thought, this okay, is popery, so I know, you know exactly who said that because right? I know the I know the the guy who said it. Right. Um, I don't mind naming names. That was Bill Hybels right? of Willow Creek, and I worked right. with Willow Creek in in various capacities for fifteen years uh, in one capacity or another, on and off. And, uh, that was, uh, that was, you know, that was Hybels, his whole thing is, and, and his deal on leadership and the leadership of the church and how important the church rises or falls on leadership, which right. I always, you know, as a, my evolution of going from working with those kinds of people to becoming a papist or, you know, into popery myself was just the realization that you were begging the question. So the question is if the church rises or falls on leadership, um, well, okay, uh, well, then who should be the leader? And right. why is it our assumption that it should be Bill Hybels or Rick Warren or Joel Osteen or whoever? Right. Um, pick your favorite mega church guy. Right. But, but if the question is the church rises or falls on the quality of leadership or its effectiveness rises or falls on the quality of this leadership, then that opens a whole question of, well, then who should be the leader? How should we pick the leader? So that, that when Hybels and those guys used to to talk about that, especially in the 90s and early 2000s when they're doing all these leadership conferences, it actually took me down the road of asking a lot of questions about church leadership, which, you know, partly led to me asking historical questions and biblical questions about church leadership, which is why I sort of ended up up in popery or as a papist. So, yeah, I mean, those are, those are great so, all right, questions. So, so then this, that leads into my first question. In the Protestant world, Everything is talked about as having come from Scripture. That's the thing that my Protestant friends will say to me. What, you're actually considering this? I mean, the Pope, come on, there's nothing in the Bible about that, right? It's just not scriptural. So it's just like our conversation about Mary. Uh, there isn't much about it in the Bible. At least you don't see it. It's not clearly laid out, right? So this is since this is not clearly laid out in Scripture— did it evolve over time? Is this yeah. one of those apostolic tradition thingies? Right. Uh, in other words, how did the Catholic Church end up? Great, with great the Pope? question. And let me just say that, you know, I uh, somebody was like just a few weeks ago sent me a Facebook link or something um, 
Protestant friend of mine, and it was, I don't know, I won't name names today, you know, um, but it was like, I think it was John MacArthur, who's a big um, yeah. uh, Protestant, very conservative Protestant Bible teacher in the Los Angeles area. I occasionally attended his church way back in a lifetime ago. I think ago. I heard him speak. Yeah. And it was MacArthur, you know, who wrote some article about, and the title of the article was something like, uh, the, the concept of the papacy is unbiblical. There's nothing in the Bible about the papacy or about the Pope. And so a friend of mine sends me this Facebook link, like Protestant friends, like, see, 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 like what John MacArthur said. And, and, you know, kind of my response was, well, I don't really, I mean, I'm not, mom should care what John MacArthur says. And, you know, and, but I don't buy his premise. And, and that's where I kind of want to go with this. The premise that unless something is explicitly mentioned in scripture, I mean, that's his premise. And unless I can find a proof text for something, then it can't be true. Because as I'll, I'll share in a minute, uh, I don't think that works, especially in the case of the papacy. Let's just start with this basic premise that leadership matters in the church. You have to have leadership. And my career helped start two churches from scratch. Mm-hmm. And what I mean from scratch, like there were... F- two of us or four of us in a Bible study in a living room. Right. And then from that, it turned into a church. And then, you know, over the years, I, I consulted with and assisted with uh, various church planting organizations ar- around the U.S. And, and other countries. So I've spent a lot of time around church planting and, uh, and new churches. And there's this premise or assumption that, you know, all you need to do is just come together and pray, and then the church just sort of organically happens, and you don't need governance or structure. And that's just so completely untrue and unworkable. Right. Like, I'm going to suggest that, based on my experience, uh, that you can't have a church for a week without putting leadership and, and governance and management in place. So some, some, some examples, right? And I know, Ed, you've been involved in some of these. Yep. You and I were involved in a church plant at one point. Like right away, you go, well, who gets a key to the building? Right. Does Ed get the key? Do I get the key? Do we, Ed and I both get keys? Does everybody have a key? Is the building left unlocked? Who decides? Um, you decide who's going to sing on Sunday. Um, does Ed sing? Does somebody else sing? Do we all sing? Do we have any singing at all? And if Ed sings and he stands up there and sings something wacky, who can tell Ed that he needs to stop singing that? It would be Beach Boys if it was me. Right. And what should we sing? And, and then who's going to preach the message or the sermon or teach from the scriptures? Is it me? Is it you? Is it somebody else? What are the qualifications to teach? Um, who chooses who teaches? What if there's two different teachers in the, in the group and they, they argue and they bicker and, and, there's a, and some people want one guy to be the, the preacher and some people want the other? How do you decide? What happens if you pick a guy and he stands up there and says weird things? How do you, how do you decide and, and, and put a check on that and say, hey, you can't say that? Who decides what, what we believe? Who decides what this group believes? Who decides what happens if the guy you put in charge um, starts having an affair with another woman and marries the other woman while he still is married to his wife and now he's a, a bigamist? Right. Uh, you know, who stands up and says, hey, you can't be the pastor anymore? What happens if you collect offerings from the people to give to the poor. And does the guy take him home, take all the cash home in a, a cardboard box and stick it under his bed and hand it out as he sees fit? And these are not just wacky things that you're making up. These are things that actually, no, they all these happen. are like actual real life practical yeah. deals, right? Uh, what, what happens if you have a, a, a guy who comes into the church and he's saying weird things or he's behaving immorally does he get to take communion or not take communion so again i'm not just coming up with wacky examples you i'm just telling you you can't function as a group right for a week 
before some of the things I just mentioned have to start getting decided. And so my point is, is that the church, any church can't function without defined leadership roles, some, some standards or methods of governing itself, some defined responsibilities and rights, and some level of organization. It just, it just can't. You know, and I know that you know, also you spend a lot of your life playing in rock bands and, and things like that. And, and I, I know that you can't have a band. A band doesn't last a couple of gigs without. I'll, I'll never do it again. <laughs> it, was, it was a lot of fun at first. I just thought everybody would, you know, maybe I don't know if this is a good analogy or not, but everybody, I just thought everybody would agree with right. what I wanted to do. I, I'm the one right. who chose everybody to be in, ask people to be in this band with me. We were a cover band, we were just doing, right. you know, classic rock or whatever. And I just thought it would be fine. And, and, then, and then after a while, it wasn't. So the point I'm trying to make, I know someone who's listening is going like, are you going to get to the Pope? I, I am. But my point is, is that no church functions without having some, call it system of governance. Right. Of governing itself. If you prefer leadership structures or you prefer management, whatever, but you have, no church can function without some sort of system of governance. So then the question becomes, what system of governance? And of course, because we're all good Bible believing Christians, we say, well, we'll just go to the Bible and we'll pick you know, we'll look in the Bible and see how it tells us to govern the church. Here's the problem. The New Testament doesn't define specifically practical models of how to govern the church. It just doesn't. And this is where John MacArthur, whoever says, well, the papacy's in the Bible, you go, right. There's no, there's no defined system of governance. Mm-hmm. In, uh, there, there kind of is, there's hints and there's parts and pieces, but there's no final laid out structure. You know, yeah, there's, there's nothing in the Bible that says there's a guy named, you know, a guy named called the Pope who lives in Rome, but there's nothing in the Bible that says there's councils of pastors. There's nothing in the Bible that says there's mega church guys who, you know, right. have this. There's nothing in the Bible that says that you have regional synods. There's nothing, I'm like all of the methods that the guys who criticize the Catholic church for having a papal model of governance, their models of governance aren't clearly defined. And the reason why is that as the New Testament was being written, the churches were just being formed. So when Paul is writing to the Corinthians or the Galatians or the Ephesians, I mean, he doesn't say, hey, go back to the governing manual that was sent you 30 <laughs> years ago because right. he had just founded the church. Right. So what the New Testament in a sense does, it, it's a snapshot of the church around 55, 60 AD, yep. 45, 50, 55, 65 AD, somewhere in that kind of 20 year period is when most of the gospels, the, uh, the epistles, the book of Acts were all written. And, uh, you know, you can debate the dates of them within five or 10 years and people do. But the point is, is that what you're getting is a snapshot of, of new churches that are in their infancy just being formed. And you don't even have a New Testament because the letters are being written. Right. It wasn't until after that period that somebody gathered those letters and, and, and right. defined them as scripture. So when you go to the New Testament, what you're really asking is, well, what was going on in 55 or 60 right. uh, AD? Uh, and what we see at that time is a couple of things. Number one, the apostles were leading the church. 
And the apostles were given specific authority. So in the Great Commission, they're told to go into all nations and make disciples, right? Baptizing mm-hmm. them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything that Jesus had commanded. So the apostles go forth in the power of the Spirit, and they make disciples and baptize, and they teach the words that Jesus had commanded. Okay? And I, and I, should, uh, I, I, I feel like I should add that the thought I'm having is that, you know, the, the words, the things that he commanded. Yep. But he didn't read those in the Bible when he commanded right. them to do these things. Right. And they didn't have the Jesus commanded these things manual to right. carry around with them. Right. They were all talking about the things he said and yeah. doing the things he said and trying to carry them all out. And, and it was only later on that they, so, so it was, a, it was an oral tradition. It was a handed exactly. down. That's exactly right. It was an, it was an oral tradition. They shared the things that they had experientially and personally learned from Jesus. This is the notion of apostolic authority. And he commissioned specifically the apostles, the 12 apostles, and then, of course, Judas being replaced by Matthias, and then Paul being added. So ultimately 13 apostles. He commanded these 13 apostles, and they were false apostles. So Paul in 2 Corinthians combats those who are coming into the city of Corinth claiming to be apostles, and Paul says they're fakes. And, and so even that is an issue, right? So who decides who's an apostle and who's not? Right. All of these things have to get hashed out, and they were being hashed out at that time. But one premise that we can say is apostolic authority, the authority that Jesus gave to the apostles to baptize, teach, form the church, and continue on not only sharing the gospel, but the moral and, and theological and doctrinal teachings that Jesus laid down. Okay? Right? Yep. Then what we do is we look in the letters of Paul and we see, okay, what does Paul instruct these infant churches? And again, they're not fully formed. He's instructing churches in some cases that had, he'd only organized months earlier when you read his epistles. Right. And what he says is to appoint three classes of leaders. And they have Greek, word, Greek names, okay? Episcopoi, presbytoi, right? Or presbytoi, uh, and diakonoi, okay? Those are three Greek words. And how you translate them, uh, generally, Episcopoi are translated as overseers, okay? Um, just exactly what it sounds like, right. kind of like the bosses. Presbytoi, it's interesting how that gets translated because Presbyterians translate that as elders. Uh, other denominations translate it as teachers or those of authority, uh, or, or pastors or priests, okay? And it depends on the denominational tradition, but there's that, that group. And then the diaconoi the, is, is ministers, those who serve mm-hmm. and minister to the, to the congregation, right. to the people. So Paul appoints himself people in all those categories. So he goes around going to churches, put over, episcopoi in place, put presbytery in place, and then put diaconoi in place. Uh, and the word, by the way, when you have a Greek word that ends in oi, that's the plural. Okay. So it would be episkopos would be the singular, episkopoi is the plural. Mm-hmm. Um, now, <clears throat> one of the things that I hear and I used to hear is that there, the, the concept of bishops is not biblical because the word bishop isn't in the Bible, which may be the single dumbest thing. <laughs> well, I don't know if it's the single dumbest, but... 
Um, you know, because I've heard a lot of dumb things. There's but a whole it, podcast right there. Yeah, right. But it but it, it ranks pretty high up there. Of course, the word bishop isn't in the Bible because the word bishop is an English word, and uh, the Bible is written in Koine New Testament Greek. So of course, there are no English words in it. But that word episkopoi or episkopos. So I did a video. Um, I think I actually did. I think I did a podcast episode uh, earlier, um, I don't know, 10, 12 episodes ago, where I talked about this also. And that's the etymology of the word, English word bishop. Because episkopos, and I go through this um, etymology, in Middle English and through the Germanic languages, gets read, um, rendered as biscop. So episkopos becomes biscop in the Germanic languages, which becomes bishop. Right. So bishop is basically the etymological derivation into English of episkopoi, the overseers. And so, yeah, bishops are in the Bible. It's the office of episkopoi or episkopos. Mm -hmm. So Paul puts these three principles in place. But the question is, who gets to appoint the bishops? Right. Who, what are their qualifications? What are their responsibilities? One of, one of them goes astray. What, what happens if one of them goes astray? What's their, what are their responsibilities, their rights, their authority, their powers, their job description, right? Their term of office. I mean, all these things. And when I say that there is no model in the New Testament, it doesn't, what I've laid out is what I've laid out, but all of those details are not hashed out. Right. So for example, Going forward, and I'll kind of leap forward a little bit, if you look into Protestant denominations after the Reformation, some Protestant denominations have bishops and some don't. Some Lutheran denominations have bishops, some don't. Some Lutheran denominations have bishops, but the bishop is elected. The Church of England has bishops, but the bishops are named by the king. Some Calvinist denominations had groups of presbyters uh, that met in synods or councils, but Mm -hmm. of course, who's a presbyter? What are the rights? What are the qualifications? What are the, how do you ordain right. them? How do you pick them? Are they elected? Are they chosen by lot? Are they, are they, do they have qualifications? What happens if one of them goes wrong? Right. And then these synods, do they all go to them? Do some selected ones go to them? How often does the synod meet? Um, what authority does the synod have to change previous decisions? Right. All, none of this is laid out. Right. So when I say that there's not a specific model for governance in the New Testament, mm-hmm. I'm not saying there aren't principles of governance. What I'm saying is there's no specific model. But the church has to practically govern itself. So from the earliest days, it, it struggled with this. And, and here's, I'll take a, I may prove to you uh, that, that there's no specific model for church governance. Because the Protestants, after the Reformation, at the time of the Reformation, who were crying sola scriptura, sola scriptura, they were, the one thing they were sure of is there shouldn't be a pope. Right? Right. But then the Protestant denominations, even in the, 15th, the 16th century, in the 1500s, couldn't agree. And they're all looking at scriptures crying sola scriptura. They couldn't agree on a single model. So as I said, the Lutherans had bishops, but the bishops were elected or chosen by a regional prince. The Church of England had bishops chosen by the king. The uh, Dutch churches had presbyters, and the presbyters were picked by certain methods. The, the presbyters in other Protestant things, the Anabaptists had no presbyters and no episcopo, no bishops, but they just had congregational meetings. And so even amongst themselves, they can't agree. Go to the Pentecostal churches today. 
And I worked a lot with the megachurch movement, like Hybels yep. and Warren and, you know, all of these groups. You know, I know you had some experience in the Pentecostal church. You have Pentecostal pastors um, who started some big megachurch, and they talk about the prophetic mantle of leadership that mm-hmm. they have. Yeah. And they'll call their wife, because I, I, I consulted with those churches, worked with them on publishing projects and other kinds of ministry consulting projects. And th- frequently they would call the wife of the senior pastor the first lady. Mm. And his kids were the first family. And so what would happen is I would go meet with them and they'd all talk about, um, well, we're doing this book deal or something with the pastor. And then the first lady needs a book deal. And then the question is, who will inherit the mantle? And that's their language. Yeah. Who will inherit yeah. the mantle, his the pastor's mantle? What the heck? Where do you get this right. inherit the mantle thing? Oh, well, Elijah in the Old Testament, inher- you know, passed on the mantle of his prophetic leadership to Elisha. Right. And that's our biblical proof text. And you go, whoa, whoa, whoa. Okay. So, so if you want to go down this path, you have to govern the church somehow. Right. If you want to go, go, one wants to go down the path of what is the biblical model of leadership, there's no clear consensus. And so, it, but it has to be figured out. And that brings us to the question of, well, how, how did it get figured out in the early church and historically? Mm-hmm. And, and that for me was that journey of going, this is chaos. Cause I was flying around in airplanes, meeting with all these different churches and hearing about uh, the general synod in this denomination and the mantle of leadership in this mega church and hearing about um, the bishop of this other, you know, kind of church and this and that. And I'm like, how did we get here? So I began to look at the early church and I mean the church of the first and the second and the third century to examine historically how the church solved this question in those days i uh i saw plenty of that you can't uh in the in the charismatic movement you can't question the leaders you just can't question them no because they they have right so they would criticize the pope for this whole concept they're catholics for apostolic succession right but they just declare themselves to be a prophet and to pass on the mantle of their prophetic leadership to whoever they and the person who you couldn't question I, I always wanted to know, well, okay, well, where do they get their authority? And it usually boiled down to them just making the claim. Right. You know what I mean? And I, there was a moment when I began leaving the uh, charismatic movement. It was a long time ago, but I was, Pat Robertson was one of the longs we're naming names. Right. We, should, we need a naming names podcast. <laughs> I know. We'll just have a whole, an episode. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We'll just start telling stories. I'll tell, right, yeah. I could tell stories about the things that I saw. Uh, over those decades and traveling and consulting and, um, and things I saw right. uh, that would just curl people's toes, they wouldn't believe. So I, I, was, I was in the library or someplace, I think it was in the library, and, and Pat Robertson was one of the big gurus, right? Oh, yeah. Oh, he was the, one of the big cheese guys. And there was a book sort of exposing him, right. like, like tell, a tell-all book by somebody who used to work with him. And I held that book in my hands, and I distinctly remember thinking, if I read this, what if it burst my bubble? And then I remember feeling, not hearing, but feeling like God was saying to me, are you sure you want to read this? Mm-hmm. Because once you do, you can't unread it. And I thought, well, I got to know. So I read the book and afterwards I thought, oh man, this is not, right. this is not what the, you know, and that shed light on, uh, that was the beginning of the end for me. I shed light on yeah. the whole thing. And I thought, well, what if I dared to question the people? that were saying couldn't be questioned. What if right. I dared to question them? And as soon as I thought that, I thought, 
I saw myself from the outside belonging to this tiny, tiny, tiny little church right. that considered itself to be really the only place you could get the truth. Yeah. You know what I mean? Well, like, okay, so when I still talk to my Protestant friends, other, other than you, you know, they'll, they'll all the time want to counter arguments by citing this or that kind of mega church author. Right. Like, well, you know, so-and-so says in his book and so-and-so says right. in his book. And I'm like, why is that an authority? Well, because they're a respected authority. And I go, based on what? Well, they have books and stuff, <laughs> right? And I go, I used to work in Christian. I used to work for the largest Christian publisher in America or right. world. And I used to be on the acquisitions team for a while of picking authors. And you go, uh, basically gave book deals to people who you thought could sell a lot of books. Right. And right. if they were, it doesn't, it wasn't quality. I, a little aside, I, I used to come in, our, our slush pile was what we called it. It was unsolicited manuscripts. So Pastor Bob, right. you know, spends 10 years slaving away at night on his computer in the back bedroom and, and writes this, this book and he just sends it in to the publisher, you know, and so hoping that somebody will publish his book. And you, we got, we got three, over 300,000 unsolicited manuscripts a year, basically a thousand a day. Wow. And so mine really has no chance. Yeah, no. Okay. And I can tell you for a fact that in Christian publishing, there were, are, there are so many brilliant brilliant, brilliantly written, insightful, theologically profound books are written that will never get published because the pastor doesn't have what they called reach. In other words, his audience, he'd only sell a couple hundred books because his right. church isn't big enough. Right. And yet there would be some guy who has a mega church and his book is poorly written, theologically inept, boring, right? right? But this guy has 10,000 people a Sunday showing up. Right. And a bookstore, and he has, and he's on the, and he has the he has a radio or a podcast or he has something, and you go, we can move product. So right. this guy gets the book deal. Then the cycle becomes. Then he becomes an authority. So, so think about this. It really becomes this, this, this cycle of the more right. people listen to you, the more authority you have, which gives you more book deals, which makes you a bigger authority. Which, right? And you go. And so, if that's the model for governance, that I should listen to Pastor So and So because he put out eight books. What authority does he have? Well, he's important because he has eight books. Well, you know, right? right. So all of this is meaningless. So we've gotten a little bit far astray, but I think it's important because the, the big point I want to make at this point in this episode is that, you know, you can reject or a lot of Protestants reject the Catholic model of governance with bishops and a prime bishop uh, in, in Rome, but their models are no more biblical or sustainable or realistic or based on anything than that. So in my sense, it becomes j just based on biblical models. It's a push. So that drives us to, to, I think, historical evolution of the papacy. Right. And, and then some reflection on the, th the theological justification for it. But it's no more or less, it's no, certainly no less biblical than anything else that's out there. Right. This is the kind of thing that I think uh, certain people I know who might want to argue with me would not want to sit and listen to what we've been talking about what you've been saying, but I think it's really important. If you're going to, if you're going to dig all the way down to the bottom, you, you need to, you need to think it through and listen and scope it out. It, otherwise, the only other option you have is to accept somebody's word for it. 
Right. And I'm not particularly good at that. So. Right. You know, I, I met all those guys who, who appointed Bill Hybels to, to be an authority, right. uh, who appointed Rick Warren to be an authority. You know, some of those guys are good guys and some of them, you know, whatever, but who appointed John MacArthur to be an authority? Right. So, so, or who appointed your local council of pastors to be an authority or your whatever. Right. So let's, let's, let's kind of, let's kind of talk about how we ended up with the papacy. Okay. okay? All right. So let's go back to the, those first decades. Mm-hmm. And what was happening is Paul was saying in his letters, appoint overseers. Again, that was that Greek word episkopos and the singular episkopoi. And these were, and then there were presbyters in the church. You call them elders, you can call them teachers, you can call them priests, pastors, but appoint an overseer, right? Mm -hmm. So if you've got, you know, a city like Ephesus or Corinth, you might have X number of presbyters, but appoint an episcopoi, somebody to sort of be the chairman of the board to some sense. Right. And, 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 and what his job is, is to ordain and supervise right. and disciple these presbyters and diaconate. So these, and again, that was called an episcopoi post, uh, an overseer. And I'm going to just, because I explained the etymology a few minutes ago, I'm going to just jump and call him a bishop. Okay. okay. Yep. Greek word episcopos. Rendered etymologically into the English language via Germanic, biscop, and whatnot into bishop. Yep. So you had a bishop in every city. And the thing to understand about the Greco-Roman world is that it was very, in some sense, urban or metropolitan. So when Paul traveled around, he traveled to cities, to Ephesus, to Philippi, to, yep. you know, Corinth, whatever. And throughout the Roman world, there were these cities, and then the cities were separated by farmland, and you would go out into the rural areas where the farms were, and then, you know, so far to the next big city. And what happened is you would begin to have gatherings of Christians served by presbyters and deacons, Mm -hmm. right? Call them pastors, bishop, pastors or priests or deacons, and they were served, and some of them might be in the in the rural area, the countryside that surrounded the city. And maybe if it was a big city, you might have, you know, multiple groups of them in the city. But there would be a bishop who kind of organized and led this thing. And those bishops became called metropolitan bishops in the ancient church because they were in the metropolitan centers. Mm -hmm. So again, Ephesus, major cities, right? Corinth, Athens, um, in, you know, in, in the Western half, Rome and, and, uh, and Lyon in France and, you know, these kinds of places. And these metropolitan bishops became, you know, uh, kind of important positions where uh, you can see coming out of the apostles traveling those where the apostles appointed some of the most senior, respected, mature, well-trained people into those positions. And what ended up happening was, um, depending on which apostles had served that area um, and had appointed the people in them, that when the apostles passed away, there was a sense of succession or apostolic succession. Right. So Paul appoints, you know, a bishop, in Ephesus or whatnot, and then when that guy or Philippi, and then when that guy passes away or is arrested and martyred, uh, he his successor, in a sense, picks up where the other guy left off, mm-hmm. and, and in some sense, the apostolic authority, or let's say the apostolic commission or the mandate 
gets handed on to a successor. Now, what became unique about, and, and by the way, in the ancient world, um, in the ancient church, the major cities, so you had cities like Alexandria and Ephesus and, you know, certain mm-hmm. cities became um, sites of sort of major bishops, major mm-hmm. metropolitan bishops. These were people who were picking up the work of the apostles a generation, two generations, three generations earlier. The city of Rome was where Peter had gone and established the church. Now, Paul, at the end of his life, ends up in Rome, and Paul is martyred in Rome, as is Peter. But Peter had been in Rome for some time, and it established the church there. And when Peter was martyred in the city of Rome, the the guy who sort of picks up where he left off and Mm -hmm. kind of takes over uh, is a guy named Linus. And Linus lasts a short time, and then he's martyred. And uh, within only three uh, short generations, and not full generations, these guys, their life expectancy, you know, in the job is like a couple of years. Talk about a dangerous job. Pretty dangerous job to be the Bishop of Rome uh, during the persecution of Nero. Right. And, uh, And so the fourth Bishop of Rome, picking up where Peter left off, is a man named Clement. Okay, so there's Peter and Linus and the other guy, I can't remember, and then Clement. That name I've heard. Okay. Now, Clement writes a letter to the church in Corinth, where Paul had written. And Corinth was once again going through a bunch of chaos, you know, theological arguments and practical ministry arguments and everything else. And so the Bishop of Rome, Clement, writes a letter to Corinth and says, as the successor of Peter. Right. As one who has picked up in a sense, the mandate of Peter, who was the first of the apostles, right? right. Um, here is, you know, my advice and instruction to you. Now, that, that letter, letter of Clement, uh, was almost included in the New Testament. Hmm. Uh, and, it's, and, and, and in the end, it wasn't. So you can't acclaim New Testament uh, canonical authority for it. But it certainly is worth reading because it's, it's, it's a letter from the early church. It's a window into the teaching and the thinking of the early church a decade or so after Peter and Paul. And Clement is already picking up that and saying, well, you know, we're continuing the work of Peter and Paul and we're continuing these things. And here's how the church should be governed and led and just speaking to those issues. And so over time, the Bishop of Rome in a sense, becomes kind of the first among equals mm-hmm. of the other sort of major city bishops or metropolitan bishops. And that becomes kind of the historical basis of organizing that, the, that each city or metropolitan area uh, is, in a sense, led by a bishop, a metropolitan bishop, which became rendered etymologically as an archbishop, and that the sort of first among equals among the archbishops uh, was the Bishop of Rome mm-hmm. because he had picked up, in a sense, the leadership or, right. of, of Peter. And this is the point where, again, my Protestant friends would say, well, that's, that's not in the Bible. And I go, no, again, but neither is your system of organization. And historically, this is the basis for it. And it was understood right. in the early church. And within a hundred years or so after the lives of the apostles, the Bishop of Rome is sort of recognized as a first among equals. Mm-hmm. Didn't have the full kind of papal authority because that, the, the full notion of the papacy evolved over a thousand years. 
uh, or 1,500 years. But already in the first centuries of the church, the Bishop of Rome is respected as, in a sense, the first among equal among the major bishops. Mm-hmm. Okay, I'll stop talking. Uh, that's interesting. And the thing, I, the thing that I find rising up in me is, yeah, but what if these guys weren't good guys? Mm-hmm. And, and the answer is, well, what if the, the guys that lead my church aren't good guys? It, it, you know, it's, yeah. uh, who are you going to trust, right? Well, yeah, uh, right. It's not a, so what you're saying, it's not a unique problem. You know, right. so we have offices. You know, we have, we have school principals and police chiefs and right. pastors, and, uh, and sometimes uh, there are individuals who aren't equal to their office or don't live up to their office. Right. Uh, but that doesn't negate the office. And again, it's not a unique problem to, to say, well, what if there was a bad pope? There have been approximately 270 popes. Mm-hmm. Some of them have been amazing. Um, a few, a couple might have been scoundrels. Most of them are average. Right. And, uh, but it is the office where you have, in a sense, the, the first among equals, the bishop among bishops who gives guidance to the other episcopoi or bishops of the world, who in turn give guidance to the presbyters or the pastors and the deacons within right. a given region. And, and at a practical level, that model of church governance is no less biblical and no worse than any other model of, of church governance, but it has the value of, of having continuity at a minimum with the the natural evolution and maybe not evolution maturation of the church from the generation of the apostles. You, you would have to, in order to believe that this uh, <clears throat> it's pretty cynical um, in order to believe that it's just this big corrupt hierarchy, you would have to believe that everybody was in on for centuries <laughs> was in on, was in on it, you know? So, so, so they appoint a guy to be a metropolitan Bishop in a big city. And everybody in the Christian world is watching. Mm-hmm. Somebody's going to say, well, you know, but it, but it, it passed scrutiny. So compare that to, uh, pardon me for making your case here, compare that to a Protestant church where the person has authority because they, you know, there's at least some in a, in a, big, in a big denomination, like around, around here where we live, it's the Reformed denomination is, is big. At least there's a governing body there that can say, well, you know, the, all of us have looked at this and we don't think that guy's any good. Right? Well, right. And I, and I, when I was in, when I was a pastor in, in a Reformed denomination, you know, occasionally we would have a report that something was going haywire in a church. You know, local church, you know, maybe the pastor was in conflict with his people. Uh, maybe there was a moral issue. The pastor was having an affair. Maybe there was a right. doctrinal issue. The pastor was teaching some wacky stuff or whatever. And so they would get a committee of other pastors together and we would go in and sort of investigate and interview and right. you know, blah, blah, blah. Of course, that's all broken apart now in the non-denominational world because it's just basically it's a free-for-all. Right. It's, you know, Lord of the Flies, whoever just kind of can gather enough people around himself right. as his own authority. But, but even in that system, the system broke down, and it only makes the point that there has to be some system of governance. And I'm not sure why it was that five of us chosen as a committee who met for lunch— uh, to discuss what to do was any more biblical or authoritative than saying we're going to go to the overseer or 
you know, or there's going to be right. a committee that, you know, that a bishop is going to work with a committee. Uh, again, it's sort of a push if your argument is there's some clear biblical model that is specific about governing procedures because there isn't. So you, you do have to fall back on the historical evolution of the church. And I just want to make another point about this. All of this is premised on the notion that Jesus commissioned the apostles to form a church and that, that the church is the body of Christ. It's a, a living community. And, you know, the whole thing about the cells in your body, right? So in one sense, all of the cells in your body die and are replaced. Right. So there's a weird sense as we sit here that, that you're not the same Ed right. that you were 10 years ago right. or 50 years ago. You're, um, you're Ed, but Ed is an accumulation of cells, which all have been replaced. Right. And you're on the, you know, 87,000th version of, of, of Ed that keeps right. organizing itself. Well, think of that in the sense of the church, that this is the church, but, and then as each of us in successive generations passes on and our children pick up where we left off, mm-hmm. um, it still remains the body of Christ, but it, the cells, which are the people that right. make up that body are replaced, but still the organizing principle. Well, here's the deal. The head is still the head. Mm-hmm. So, you know, and that's biblical. Paul talks about, you know, the parts of the body, right? You know, and the gifts of the spirit. Uh, not all parts of the body are the same. There's the head, there's the tongue, there's the hands, there's right. this and that. Well, there is the sort of governing aspect of the church, and that has that governing aspect, that uh, office has been made up of different people over the last several thousand years, but the office remains, even mm-hmm. if the office is successively replaced. One of the quick thing about those early metropolitan bishops, and was it, was it crazy? Look, when you're talking about the early metropolitan bishops, I mean— most of them died because they were martyred. Right. You know, so you, you take a, a bishop like the early church, like Polycarp, who, you know, was, you know, martyred. And all of these early guys, these early bishops were martyred by the Romans. This wasn't a cushy job. These were, these were overseers and bishops that were leading from the metropolitan area they were. Again, Ephesus, Philippi, Lyon, Rome, wherever. Uh, and they were organizing themselves and, and doing um, and, and, and leading the church. And they were appointing pastors and deacons and dealing with issues of theology. And they would occasionally get together and converse. So you had councils of bishops, and that's where mm-hmm. the early church councils were. So you look at the council of Nicaea, the council of this, the council of that, the councils that picked the, which, which, which books should be included in the New Testament. The councils that defined the, the teachings of Jesus were assemblies of bishops. And again, that's not in dispute in some Protestant denominations that still have bishops, like some Lutheran denominations, Episcopalians, others. The issue is how are those bishops chosen, and is there a first among equals? Mm-hmm. And that, I think, is the distinctly Catholic position, is that the bishop who inherited the, the successor of Peter, the bishop who inherited that, that this structure inherits a first among equals position. And, and interestingly, the way the Pope is chosen is you have senior bishops, which are basically cardinal, cardinal electors right. or bishops that have been given the right to pick the new Pope, who gather together and decide when one Pope passes, who shall be the next Bishop of Rome. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, and then that person assumes that uh, authority. Well, the, you know, I can hear my Protestant friends saying, okay, but... If you're going to talk about the body of the church, the body of Christ, then then Christ is the head of the church, not the Pope. But that 
that I feel like that just leads right back to the question. Yeah, but somebody has to decide things. Somebody well, has right. to. Right. It's, it's, it's a non-starter point, right? I mean, like, okay, first of all, when you say, well, it's not, it's Jesus in charge, not the Pope. You go, who, who, who argues that? The Pope doesn't argue that. Right, right. Right? I don't know a Pope who doesn't say, I right. work for Jesus, right? And acknowledge that. But at that human level, let's go back to the issue I gave the first. Somebody has to decide who gets keys to the building. Somebody has right. to decide who gets to sing the sing and who doesn't. Someone has to decide, right? All these issues. So, so yes. Jesus is, is the head of the church, but at least at the human level, mm-hmm. somebody has to organize and lead and, and govern and manage it. And it's either going to be led by bishops appointed by a king, or it's going to be, um, you know, sort of democratic councils of pastors, or it's going to be the mega church guy with the book deal. But one way or the other, right. someone is going to make yeah. those decisions. Right. And within the Catholic church or the historic thing, it was that historic evolution of 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 the Bishop of Rome. So I know, Ed, I'm going to jump in here. I know that we have more questions about the Pope and, you know, what authority has, if the Pope picks the Broncos to win the Super Bowl and he's infallible, can I bet bet the family farm on, on him being right? right? So why don't we stop and then we'll pick this up and make it a second episode and, and ask me some of those, those objections. Yeah. Great. Okay. Super. Thank you for listening. My name is Greg Smith. And if you've enjoyed this podcast, would you please hit the like and subscribe buttons wherever you get your podcasts? And please share it with others. And if you're curious about the Catholic worldview and faith, the church and its saints, or Catholic history, culture, and art, then visit consideringcatholicism.com. And email me to let me know what you think. Greg at consideringcatholicism.com dot com.